image of heaven that you've given us. Let's pray. Gracious and our loving God, holy are you, so far beyond our comprehension, yet so close that you speak to us intimately. Holy are you, Lord. And as we gather today, we gather with hearts that are, are full of gratitude for the things that you've done for us. Full of gratitude for the weeks that we've just had. The highs and the lows, Lord, you teach us so much. In a world where we see so much conflict, where we see so much pain, where we see so much hurt, we are thankful that we find our unity in Christ that we have one another to lean on and to hold close. That we have, you give us family and friends that lift us up when we're struggling. Lord, we give you thanks for your church. Today we really want to lift Pete and his family to you. Lord, as they mourn the loss of dear Corny, Lord, comfort them in their grief. Surround them in, their, uh, in your peace and remind them of what we've just been singing about, that Corny is now singing praises in heaven, the things she'd love to do. May they feel the embrace of your love and the support of this and the wider community as they navigate this hard time. In all things, Lord, we give you thanks. May our hearts overflow with gratitude for your goodness. Lord, we thank you this week for the, the Wednesday night team that go out to Baronia. We thank you for the love that they are able to show so many people. And Lord, we give you thanks for those who have been connected with there. Lord, may they continue to be able to share your goodness with others and a really good cup of coffee. <laughs> Lord, we know there are many who are online today as they can't be with us in person. And we think about them and we pray, Lord Jesus, that they will know uh, the same blessing that, that we feel here as well. That they're part of this church, a church that loves one another well. Lord, we thank you for our incredible team who make this a possibility. Lord, who are able to share their gifts with us to make others who can't be here uh, a part of KSBC. Lord, we want to consider those who are not well or have had diagnosis or tests this week or had procedures done this week. We know there are a few. And Lord, I pray that they will know you in this time. Now, Lord, we want to look beyond our walls as well and lift those, especially those who have been impacted by the fires this week in Victoria. We pray for their safety and the safety of all those working hard to keep them under control. Lord, for those who have lost houses, those who have lost cattle and livelihood, Lord, I pray that as they consider what it means to rebuild, that you will be close to them, that you will gather people around them. I pray that you be with the churches in that area who will shine the light of Christ into those spaces. So, Lord... We offer all these prayers up to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
I'm going to invite Daniel up and he's going to give us our Bible reading from Nehemiah chapter 1. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you and good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Nehemiah and I'm reading from the beginning of chapter 1 right to the end of the chapter. Reading from the NIV. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great And awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your success, give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate that reading. I wonder what this week has been like for you. Um, We all come into church with the reflections of the week sort of sitting maybe at the back of our mind. Maybe we sort of try and dump it and go, I'll just leave it there. But I wonder what it's like for you. This morning I thought I'd try something. Um, I want you to think of a movie title that would sum up your week. Good luck. You've got a minute. Think of a movie title that might sum up your week. If you've got one and you want to share it with us, you can pop your hand up and I'll, uh, I'll ask it. I, I thought of one for myself. Anyone got one? 
not an easy question. I didn't do it in a minute, to be fair. A movie title that would reflect your week. Mine was The Pursuit of Happiness. That was mine. Not because of the movie. I don't think I've even seen the movie. But the title, The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, I had a week that was up and down, up and down. Um, some great stuff and some hard stuff. And through it all, I was trying to see all of what God was doing in and through it. Pursuing the, the happiness of God. Anyone, anyone think of one? Uh, I'm going to ask you all afterwards. Uh, what was your... Just to think of it. That's got nothing to do with the sermon, just thought it would be a nice way to start. As we've been looking at this series of belonging, this, this, uh, the start of this year, my hope is that you've sort of started to get some sort of uh, an idea of, of leaning in together into God's community of people here at KSBC. If you're new here, it's your first week, we've been going through this series uh, called Belonging, and I'm excited by what God's doing in, in bringing people together as the community of God's people. Um, uh, there's been a sense of the movement of God already this year. This, this, this morning after church, at our church meeting, we've got about 15, 16 people that will be coming into the membership, that we're bringing to the membership of KSBC. More people still are waiting for, for our next meeting. There's a lot of good things going on into the community of believers at the start of this year. Yet, yet we also know that as things go really well, you also start to feel sometimes things get hard as well. How many times have people started on a Bible reading plan and you think, this is so good, I've done five days in a row, I'm really going for it, and then from day six it just all goes downhill. Yeah, anyone ever experienced that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you feel guilty and you go, all right, I'll get to day six, but it's now it's day eight, and you go, oh, now I missed two and I'm feeling really guilty. And then by day 12 you've lost it all together. Anyone done that? Don't worry because that's, that's me as well. I know that, I know that, I know that. Um, But this morning, as we consider belonging through the lens of Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to look at this this Nehemiah as a a leader. He he led some people back to rebuild the walls, which is great. But chapter 1 shows us how he dealt with the challenges and hardships that come knocking on our door. Our foundation statements that we've been looking at that are up on the wall out there, this morning the one that we're looking at is developing a culture of leadership and service. And it's a, it's a, it's a good one. I, I could have just chosen to, 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 to look at Jesus because that's a leader that served. We hear of him at the very core. Jesus is a servant leader, a leader who had the whole world following him, yet a servant that wasn't too big for his sandals to, to stoop down and wash the feet of those who followed so this morning we're going to look at the start of Nehemiah's journey. And the first thing we find Nehemiah do, before he builds team, before he gets people involved, before he goes and builds a wall, the first thing he does is to cry out in prayer for the nation of Israel and its plight to be a worshipping community again. And we hear this important principle, that prayer Specifically, God-honouring prayer that we're going to see that Nehemiah shares is the starting point to building a servant community. We all react differently to different things, don't we? Did you know the football season's only like two and a half weeks, maybe three weeks away? How exciting. Who's excited for the new footy season? 
Yeah, we haven't got heaps of footy people. This is not cool for me because I'm so excited about the footy season. I'm so excited. And, and, and so as you, as you go through and you start seeing ads come on the TV or if you're scrolling through Facebook, I must have said Collingwood way too many times because it's all, all Collingwood all on my Facebook thing. I get goosebumps because it's all about what happened last year and Collingwood winning the grand final. And, and every time I see something like that, I'm just like, oh, it's the best. I can't wait for the new season. Now, I know that Innes and the McCartney boys might see it slightly differently, unfortunately, as Brisbane supporters. Having been through that in 2018 with Collingwood going down by less than a goal, I know when you see those clips, the disappointment that you get and that thought of, oh, I don't want to see this anymore. Is that how you feel, Innes? <laughs> I know it. I know it. When I see Nick Dacos jump up and do that hand pass to, to Goey and hit that goal, I go, yes, and Innes goes... <laughs> I know it. I've been there. Same game, same situation, different reactions. <laughs> Might be flipped. But I wonder how we respond when we have tough news. Do we respond differently to the same situations? How do we respond when we hear a friend is in great need or we see someone who is hungry or how do we respond when we hear of violence towards others or we see bullying happening in a shopping centre? How do we respond? Different people respond differently, but how do we as the people of God respond in these spaces? We have different responses and they vary because of the amount of investment and depth that we have into that specific space. But at the start of Nehemiah, Nehemiah hears some pretty challenging news. And his response was not to go and have a chat to others about it and go, well, that's really no good. It wasn't to have any sort of a sense of going out and going, well, we can't have that. It wasn't to ignore it and just hope that news would go away. We've probably all been guilty of doing some of that. Nehemiah's immediate response to a hardship that was come onto his doorstep was to pray, and to pray a God-honouring prayer. As a leader within this nation, it might have been easier to set things into action. It might have been easier to have a, a, a gripe, get reflective, go and fight, we're going to get this happening. It might have been easier to do it that way. Yet his first instinct was to pray. Now, before we go deep diving into Nehemiah's prayer, it's probably important to understand where Nehemiah fits into the story. Now, last year, if you were with us through the year, we've, we were going through the story, and we got up to just about where we are in Nehemiah. But I want to sort of recap, just in a nutshell, um, some of the story so that we understand why Nehemiah is so troubled by this stuff. So let's, let's get into it. It's going to be quick. So God calls the nation out of Israel under the tyranny of Egypt, and they head through the, 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 um, the, the sea with Moses. And Moses leads them around the desert to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's going to be great, massive grapes and all sorts of things going on. The goodness of God is there. This is a place that they're going to be. And yet they doubted whether they could overcome the armies in that place. 
So because of their doubt, God allowed them to wander through the desert for 40 years while that generation slowly died off, the generation who refused to put their trust in him. Can you imagine being the last one of that generation and everyone going, just die already, we're ready to go into the promised land? (laughs) I've often thought that's a bizarre thought. Then under Joshua, God leads the people into the promised land. And they begin to look around and they want a king to be like the other nations. They, they, get, they get into their land, they say, oh, we need a king. All these other nations have got kings and we don't have one. So God says, you don't need one. I'm your king. Remember me? But after the king continually longing for another king, finally God grants him a king. And the first king is King Saul. He was the best looking he was the one, the greatest warrior. He's the tallest. He was the one that was bound to be king. However, Saul, like those in the wilderness, doubted the goodness of God and doubted the provision of God and took things unto his own hands and offered sacrifices that were unacceptable to God. And God removed him as king and replaced him with David, who was a shepherd boy who played the harp. Not so much the kingly look. So Saul took Looked the part, David looked like he should never be the part. However, we hear that David was actually uh, someone who had wrestled bears and lions with his bare hands. So maybe there was something beyond that. So the prophet came to anoint this new king and David's um, dad, Jesse, even forgot about him in the field. And he says, uh, I can't find the next one. He says, have you got another person, another sort of child lying around somewhere and he goes oh yeah David's out in the field brings him in and he's anointed as the king however David is a fighter like I said he killed a bear with his own hands Um, not many of us can say we've done that maybe one anyone no okay good okay that's good to know Um, maybe you haven't had the opportunity I'm not going to put a past you all maybe you haven't had the opportunity so anyway um, let us know when you do um, but don't look for the opportunity I'm getting into a hole at the moment. (laughs) So he's overlooked, he had some great credentials, and the greatest part about it was that he had a heart to serve God. He was a man after God's own heart. So God uh, gives uh, David the, the kingdom, and under David's kingship, Israel flourishes. In fact, all the threats of the other nations around all of a sudden are crushed under the reign of David. He goes to war against the Philistines, he goes to war against anyone who threatens Israel, And when David finally dies, and David wasn't all good, he had his ups and downs, but when David finally dies, he turns the kingdom over to his son, Solomon. And Solomon builds a temple, a big temple, and peace continues in Israel. Israel becomes a powerhouse, a regional power, no threats to its border. It's flourishing as a nation. Can you remember all this? This is what we did last year, all this. Sure, you remember it all. However, for the wealth and power that Solomon had accumulated, all the peace that had come through his reign and his father's reign, there was trouble coming ahead because Solomon's children weren't exactly being brought into the kingly lines in the greatest of way. And sure enough, after Solomon passed, you see the nation of Israel, that was a regional power, starts dividing too. And I've got this, uh, um, this slide here. And 
this is probably the best image. I think I got this when I was like, this is probably 20 years old, um, someone gave this to me. And, and it shows how, how the sort of scale, I don't know if you see all the words on it, but how the scale there. But the, the, the nation was one, it splits into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom didn't fare well at all. You can see that, its line stops after um, just not a short time. Um, they were, had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, and every king in the northern kingdom was a bad egg. They didn't do well. Uh, so eventually, they, they, Assyria came and took them. Um, they took them, they deported them, they took the people away and spread the people across the entire empire. It disseminated that power base that um, had been built up under David and Solomon. So you can't be a powerful nation if you spread far and wide, can you? So Judah fared a bit, bit better. Their line goes a little bit further. Though They had a southern king. They were able to hang in there a little bit better. They had good kings and they had bad kings and good kings and they had bad kings. But they were able to hold on a little further than the northern kingdom. But 136 years after the northern kingdom was conquered, the people are deported and exiled and the southern kingdom of Judah falls, not to the Assyrians like the northern kingdom, but to the Babylonians. Now, at that time, they were the reigning sort of, they were the, they were the Maggies of the, of the known world, the Collingwood of the known world, the, the ones that just was just dominating everyone. That's not in my notes, but that just seemed right. I'm setting myself up for a fall this year, aren't I? I'm setting myself up for a fall. So then the Babylonians, they export and deport the Israelites into the southern kingdom and spread them across the ancient world. Slaves and servants, and they're all bought to the Babylonian Empire. So, whew, that's a whole lot of history. So they go into this exile, and um, 50 years later, Persia shows up and, and decides they're going to run the world. They're going to be, they're going to be the Brisbane that run over Collingwood, um, and, and they conquer the Assyrians. Now, the Persian Empire has taken root in the ancient world, and at the end of 2 Chronicles, so we've gone all the way through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to Cyrus, not Billy Ray Cyrus, if you have that um, 90s music reference. No, the king of Persia, Cyrus, that a portion of the Jews should be released and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. What a journey. God uses a non-Israelite king in mightier ways than even the northern and southern kings of uh, Israel. Isn't that incredible? What a journey that this group of people, this nation, went under. So that's where the book of Ezra comes in. If you haven't read the book of Ezra, go and read the book of Ezra. But the book of Nehemiah comes in in the same simultaneous space in history. Ezra slightly ahead of Nehemiah, but the same time in history. So that's where we come to today. Nehemiah 1. The, the temple's being rebuilt. But then we hear the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. This is verse 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Gates have been burned with fire. Now, we need to stop and think about this. We live in a wallless society, don't we? I mean, we've got walls on our houses, but we live in a wallless society. We don't have big walls that define Kilsyth South 
or Croydon or Moorabach, wherever you might live. So speaking about a wall being around the temple that was being rebuilt or in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, it doesn't really give us a great understanding of the importance of what the people were saying here. We, Solari and I lived in England for uh, quite a while, for five years um, back uh, a while. And if you've ever been there, has anyone been to a castle in England? Yeah, quite a lot of you. So, so you'll know that we, we lived in a place... Um, right on the south coast, and there was this place called Netley Abbey. And we used to love going there because you can go and kick a footy there, um, and it was really, it was good. Plenty of place to play some cricket and that sort of lovely spaces. It was really good. But, um, but its history was incredible. Now, we're right on the south coast, so, but as we went there, we started to... I used to go and picture, wonder what this would have been like when it was all fully built. So it's all just in ruins, but what it would have been like when it was all fully built up. And you can see the boundaries of these walls around the, the central point of the, of, the, of, the, of the sort of township, I suppose. And then there would have been all these other little buildings and then people in tents and everything. But there's this big area where you can see where the walls would have been. Now, it was right on the southern coast of England, so it was really vulnerable to any sort of attack from the sea. So these big walls were a place where it would provide security. It would provide a safety net from people coming in and attacking them as such. So you could understand the need to have a, a walled space around your community. There would have been beautiful communal life inside, but the walls around it would have been important as guards stood on top, the lookouts, um, to protect them from being totally vulnerable vulnerable to those tax attacks, ruining their infrastructure and community. So for Nehemiah to have his brother tell him that he may not have seen his brother for some time, they might have been part of the exile, to come back and say, hey, the remnant of Israel's people are really vulnerable because there is no wall. Nehemiah knew exactly what that meant. This remnant of God had been released through the Persian king Cyrus was now in danger of losing everything again because there was vulnerability, because there was no wall around it. A wall was needed, Nehemiah felt it. In fact, it hit him so hard. Now, verse 4 tells us how hard it hit. It says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Have you ever had news that floored you in that way? News that changed your life so dramatically that all you could do was stop and pray. For me, it was, and I might have told you the story before, but excuse me if I have, was September 11, 2001. Yes, September 11, 2001. For me, it was the first time I'd really heard of terrorist acts. And the world woke up to this news that thousands of people have been killed through a terrorist attack. And that's the first thing we heard on the radio. Now, I know there's been wars and natural disasters that claim more lives, but that, for me, was the casualties at the hands of others didn't make sense. Uh, it, was a, it was a bit much for me to digest. And I remember working on my own. I was a land surveyor, working on my own that day. I was out in the fields. Um, no one was around, just feeling a little bit like a zombie all day, just doing the job that I could do, 
making it work, it was okay, but thinking this job is meaningless in the bigger scheme. I remember just petitioning to God all day, God, why? What do you want me to do? Why is this happening and why am I so insignificant in the scheme of it all? I didn't yell out verbally, I didn't cry, but I just petitioned God all day as I worked. And it was through that day and and through the weeks to come that Solara and I decided we need to explore what God was calling us to. We'd only been married for less than a year at this stage. And God, we, we, we sought God and God led us towards doing youth ministry and schools ministry. It led us to work over in the UK in a church as a youth pastor, led us back to Australia to work at Templestowe Baptist as a youth pastor, led me to Newport Baptist for seven years as, a, as a, the sole pastor there and then brought us here. And God has utilised that moment of pain for the last 23 years of full-time ministry for my, myself and Solarius is supporting in that space as well. The news that day floored me. And it changed my life. And it seems that the news for Nehemiah floored him as well. There was no wall and it was having an impact. He wept and wept and petitioned and fasted and prayed. In fact, it seems like he probably prayed for about four months. It seems that's the time between chapter one and chapter two. But why did it impact him so much? I mean, if we look at Nehemiah, we'd not just blame him for just sort of going, well, that's no good. Good luck with that. We don't know a whole lot about Nehemiah at the start of the chapter, but we find out that very last verse of the chapter that he is cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer, that's an important uh, position, influential position, a privileged position in that society. He was the one who would taste the king's wine, would sample the finest food to make sure it was okay. Nehemiah got the best cut of meat when they uh, brought the food out. If Nehemiah died while eating it, unfortunate for Nehemiah, but good for the king. <laughs> That's an important spot in the, in the, in the kingdom. So he was cupbearer. He's important. He lived 800 miles away from Jerusalem, probably didn't know the majority of exiles that had gone back to Jerusalem, didn't know the dangers that were there. Why not just live his life out? Why not just live in this luxurious space? Why such great empathy? He had everything. He had the best food that he could have, the luxurious life. There was no real threats to the Persian Empire. They were powerful. They were the strongest. And he was one of the most important people in the eyes of the king. You'd not blame him if he just sort of let that slip through to the keeper as such. But he was floored by this news, totally floored by it. And his first response in the light of that bad news was to weep, to fast, and to pray. He showed this genuine concern and empathy for his fellow Israelite people, even if he didn't necessarily know who they were. I think it gives us an insight into the character of Nehemiah, something we can all learn from. Nehemiah shows this genuine concern for these fellow nationals, the people of God. Here's a person in privileged position, breaking down and hearing of danger for his fellow people. I wonder if we ever have that when we hear of how our fellow believers are being treated. The people at your work when maybe someone stands up for Christ and gets shut down a little bit. I wonder how we go when we hear about the persecuted church and we prayed last week for them. The good thing about the passage 
is that we don't just have to take this verse on its, on its own. When we hear about tough news, we don't have to, 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 to do a copy of Nehemiah and just break into this wailing mess and do nothing for days. Rather, chapter 1 of Nehemiah shows us Nehemiah's response in prayer, and that is something we can learn on. It shows us that in prayer, he, he, he honours God and who God is. And it's through prayer that I want to suggest that as a church who seek to be a church that serves not just one another, but serves our community. Prayer is going to be the starting point to solidify our belonging. Because as we see, God honours God-honouring prayer. So what does this God-honouring prayer look like? And I want to go through four elements, Jasper, four today, not three, four elements uh, <laughs> as to God's honouring prayer. Um, Jasper's been telling me only three today, Dad, just three, three, three things, so I'm going for four. <laughs> the first thing that we hear out of, uh, out of Nehemiah's prayer is that he acknowledges the greatness of God. And we see this in verse 5. We hear in verse 5 in Nehemiah's prayer, it starts like this, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Nehemiah just heard traveling news. He just went away. He'd been weeping. He'd been fasting. And I wonder if he had any thought of crying out to God, say, to God and say, God, just don't let it happen. Just God, put your finger on it now and make it all stop. Yet his first point of prayer is to worship and acknowledge the greatness of God. In the midst of his own despair, he lifted his eyes beyond his own situation and acknowledged God's unquestionable power. God's good all the time. God's all-knowing. God's all-powerful. And regardless of how we read a situation... There's nothing that God doesn't already know. I think sometimes we don't treat God with the respect that God deserves. We humbly come before God in prayer, asking us to give us our daily bread, expecting that God will give us a rich Scott fillet steak. But we must have a healthy respect for God before we can go and ask for the big things of God. The same God who created the world, who flung stars into space, the God who created humans, the God who knitted us together in our mother's wombs. We must have a reverence for that God. Jesus himself teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. The disciples say, how should we pray? What's the first line of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus says? He starts his prayer the same as Nehemiah starts his prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your, your name is holy, O Lord. Your name is holy. There's an acknowledgement of the holiness of God at the very beginning. Not a sense of, this is what I want, God. So we should, before God, acknowledge that he is holy. That God is above and beyond the situations that we face. God has the power to change all things and do all things. So Nehemiah's prayer reminds us that regardless of the pain of the situation, we must put God first. Now, your situation might be hard. I'm not belittling anyone's situation. You might be feeling pain. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's uh, a loss or maybe it's that you feel um, that you need, uh, that you're hurt in some way. They're hard things to deal with. Nehemiah was in pain for the people, yet through it he acknowledged his Lord above and before all else. When our eyes are focused on him, 
our heart starts to be moulded to see the things in the way God sees it. We start to see things with a different perspective. We start to see God shine in through the pain, the loss and the hurt. Acknowledge God's greatness as we start in prayer. The second thing that Nehemiah's prayer reminds us of is that he reminded God of the covenant that he made with his people. Now, this may seem a little odd. God knows, God remembers, we've just gone through all that, and God doesn't forget. That's the nature of what God set up. God set up covenants with the people of God. He's not going to forget them because, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. He doesn't do that. So why does Nehemiah pray about the covenant that he made? Is he sort of trying to heap a little bit of guilt onto God here? Come on, God, do you remember what you said? You are God who keeps his covenant of love, as verse 5 says, with those who love him and keep his commandments. He also lays it a little stronger if you go into verse 8. Remember the instruction he gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling place for my name. It's an interesting thought. But God made us for his own delight. Did God need to create us? Did God need to fulfill his purpose? Nope. God made us so that we would give him back glory. Perhaps in reciting God's promise back to him, Nehemiah is actually worshipping God and he's demonstrating his understanding of how God is interacting with the world around us. I suppose it's like when we teach a child um, the sounds that an animal makes. When Kyra was really little, uh, we'd say, what does a cat say? And she'd mimic a meow, meow, meow. And what does a dog say? She'd go, off, off, off. And, And... we don't need her to tell us the answer, do we? We already know that a cat goes meow and a dog goes woof woof. Um, but the pleasure it will give us to hear our child saying the things that we've taught her is wonderful. And you might remember that in your own kids. But I wonder if some way God delights in us reciting the promises of God that he's given us back to him. God already knows it, but he delights in us knowing it as well. On another, another level, it sort of iterates in our own minds God's word and promise to us. As we speak it back to God, we're reminded of God's goodness to us and the promises that he shared with us. So Nehemiah did that. He first of all acknowledged God's greatness. And he, he shared God's promises back to God. But on the third level, Nehemiah then starts to confess Israel's sin. Nehemiah in his prayer was basically saying as a nation, We're not, we haven't been faithful. We haven't kept your commands. We've turned our back on all the good things you've ever given us. We decided that we knew best, even though we didn't. And Nehemiah then goes to a personal confession. Even I and my father's house, we've sinned against you. From the very start of Nehemiah's story, we find out that Nehemiah is passionate about Israel. He weeps and weeps and weeps. He weeps for weeks about the idea that the temple will be retorn down, that everything that's happening will be destroyed. We see a heart that beats for Israel and for God to interact with Israel in the way that God used to interact. But he also understands his place in the story, a place that you and I sit in the very same story. Sinners 
ones who have turned our back on God. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we acknowledge before God that we are sinful, we actually get a right picture of who we are in the light of God. Now, that's not to say we should sit in a wallowing state going, oh God, I'm the worst person in the world all the time. Because we're secure in our salvation. That doesn't change. God, through Jesus Christ, has cleansed us, made us clean. We find that in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, make us clean, set us right before God. We're cleansed through Jesus Christ. Yet confessing to God our failings keeps us understanding our great need for him. When, when I see my children do something that is wrong, I have the opportunity to go and say, you've done something bad. But if they come to me and say, Dad, I've done something wrong, it makes it so much more powerful. Confession brings you to a state where you understand what you've done. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. But I'm not going to take it lightly because I understand. So in, in Nehemiah's God-honoring prayer, he first acknowledges God's greatness. He's um, reminded of the promises that God's given them. And then he confesses his nation's sin and his own sin. And then he goes and he asks. He asks specifically for the help that is needed. So at the end of the chapter, we hear Nehemiah asks that his prayer be heard. Verse 11, he says this, Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man, this man being the king. Maybe through his prayer and fasting, God reveals to Nehemiah what he should ask. Because if it was me looking at that story, I'd be going, uh, maybe you should ask for a little more than just the favour of God with this man. Maybe you should ask that, that an army would, would just rise up out of nowhere and protect. Maybe you should ask something a fair bit bigger than you just have. But Nehemiah asked God for one thing. Maybe there was no, we realized there was no way he could leave his post as cupbearer unless the king granted him that leave. And maybe he felt God saying, you need to be the one that raises things up. Whatever it was, it was his only request that the king grant his favor. His prayer didn't waffle into what he needed or that someone would come along and do something else. Rather, because he was hearing from God, his heart was set with, right with God, he just asked that one thing. And so for us, when we pray for the needs in our lives or the needs around us and for the needs we see in people, God hears because we're not coming just with the shopping list and expecting the greatest sort of response in a great way. Because our prayers become God-honoring, God-focused. What we ask for becomes more aligned with what concerns the heart of God. We no longer get caught up in the shopping list prayers, but we get caught up in the prayers that now match God's heart. We can start to become specific in our prayer. We start to become honouring of God in what we ask. What we don't see in the first chapter of Nehemiah is how God takes the prayer of this faithful cupbearer, a man who has influence, 
A man who has some power within that Persian system, I suppose. And God takes this man and he brings him to be a leader. He brings him to be a leader to rebuild the walls, to provide security for the, the people who are building the temple. But before Nehemiah becomes a man who could lead and serve, he first bows down in prayer. This, uh, this last few weeks, it's been really lovely to pray on Wednesday mornings with, at 7am with a few people on Zoom. Um, everybody is welcome, but we start our day online with half an hour, 7.30 till 8 o'clock of prayer. And it's been a blessing. It really has been a beautiful blessing. It'd be great to see more of you uh, come online with us. I'll send another email out through this at the start of this week. If you're not on our email system, come and see myself or Pastor Jeanette. She will love to engage you into that space. Write your, write your email address out on the Seek and Find table. We'd love to engage you into that space. But to be able to pray together builds community together. A church who prays together belongs together. A church who prays in a way that honours God in their prayer will see great things of God start to come forth. Let me pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you so much for the story of Nehemiah. Lord, just getting that first glimpse of Nehemiah's heart, who is, uh, which is a heart to pray, a heart to seek you, and a heart to, to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, help us to be people who pray like Nehemiah, who lead from an action of servanthood. May this be a church that develops uh, servants and servants who are willing to be on their knees. Just as Jesus got up early and went out into the quiet places, may we people who are on our knees praying for the things that break your heart, that we might see transformation, not just in ourselves, but in the world around us. We give you thanks and praise. Amen. Thanks, David.